I, I could not say enough. I, my, my profoundest and deepest thanks to Shiloh for all that you've said and done, the sympathy that you've expressed. And mother was our oldest living uh, member. He's usually here. That, that falls to Brother Farrell now. Um, he's not here right now, I guess. But uh, we thank you. And I can know that she would have been overjoyed to know all that you've done for us with her passing. Now let's look together, if you'll open God's precious holy word to John chapter 1. We've come to verse 19, but I want to fall back and lay the foundation that we've already covered, but it carries us into verse 19. And so to go back in verse 15, John, now this is John the Baptist, John witnesses concerning him, that is the Logos, verses 1 through 14, the Word who was with God, who was God, who made everything we're taught by John, concerning him, and he cried out saying, this was he of whom I was saying, the one coming after me has precedence over me because he was before me. John the Baptist is unique in all of the characters of Scripture. He is the last of the prophets and the first of the New Testament preachers. He gives to us the beginning of the Christian testimony. The foundation of that testimony is right here where John the Baptist proclaims the deity of Christ. Physically, Christ was born after John the Baptist by a few months. But in reality, he is God the Son. He is the creator of John. He's the, he, he's the, the Savior. He is the eternal Christ. And so this is part of our testimony at the very beginning of the Christian era, just prior to it as John the Baptist prepares the hearts. Here, John the Baptist is saying, he was before me, he's eternal. And that's our proclamation. The Savior whom we serve is not some mere and ordinary man. He became a man to accomplish his divine purpose but he's God. He's in every whit God and man. John the Baptist is uniquely qualified and resourced and called by God. John the Baptist disappears for 30 years from Luke chapter 1 when, when his, you know, his, his, his daddy went mute. He couldn't talk until the, the child was born. His parents were old. John was sort of a miracle baby. You don't hear anything about him for 30 years. He's a nomad. He's eating locusts and honey. He dresses in, in animal skins and leather. And he is attending the seminary of the Holy Ghost out there in the wilderness. And when he is fully prepared, the word of God then comes upon him. 
the Spirit of God unctions him and pushes him forward, he becomes what he was created and designed to be as John the Baptist, bringing an end to the era of prophets with regard to the Old Testament. He, as the forerunner of Christ, gives us the precursor and then the beginning of the Christian message. That God became a man, the creator of all things, has accommodated himself to time and space. He has clothed upon himself the veil of flesh for the purpose of doing what only the Christ of God would, could do. Namely, at the end of it, to die on the cross for his own. To redeem us and to save us. And then through the power of his resurrection to raise us from the dead. So this is the beginning of the Christian testimony. And this is the part of the fullness of, of our testimony that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God Almighty has accommodated himself to, to show us who he is in the only way that we can understand him. So this is how... It all begins, and it begins really with the voice of John the Baptist. Then moving on into verse 16 through 18, from his fullness, we have all received grace, perpetually succeeding grace. We talked about that. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God yet ever. The only begotten God, the one being in the bosom or within the intimacy of the Father, he has explained him. So this is the continuing Christian testimony. You cannot know God apart from Christ. God will not reveal himself to you in any other way except through his creation by way of appreciation, which is a, a common grace that falls on all of us. We, we all enjoy what God gives to us with regard to rain and, and crops and food and health and air to breathe. But when it comes to divine life, when it comes to knowing the true and living God, there's only one true and living God and he cannot be known apart from Christ. There is no other explanation in salvation of God except through Christ. There is a terrible error a counterfeit gospel almost that the world has become immersed in and that terrible error is that there are certain religious groups in the world who are monotheistic, that is they only worship one God, but the error is that it's being taught even from church pulpits that we all worship this same God. He's called this in this religion and he's called that and considered that way in this religion and Christians see him this way. That is not true. If it is a God who is sought to be revealed apart from his Christ, he is not God. That is not God. God can only be known through Christ. Now, people think that's a hate message. No, it's a message of love. Do you want to live forever? It won't bother me. I don't care what you look like, where you've come from. It, won't bother, it, will, it will overjoy my soul if, if your house is next to mine. I don't care. Because the Christian message is so filled with love 
and concern that we don't care who you are, where you've come from, what you look like. We want you to come to God through Christ. There is no other way. And we want you to live forever like us. And the only way that you can know God is through Christ. Now that's truth. Truth and grace came through Jesus Christ. Anything else that is not in Christ is false. That's not a fashionable way to live these days. Truth, and I put that in quotation marks, in the world is constantly being readjusted and redefined. But the standard of truth in the word of God stands forever. It is unchangeable. And the church does not have the latitude to change that truth even in the slightest way. I was reading a couple of weeks ago about a particular English translation of the scripture. It came out in the early 2000s. Up to this point, it has been a favorite translation of mine. And it's not, it's not the NASB. No, don't think it's that. It's another one. But those who own that, yeah, I know, I just wasn't going to say it. <laughs> Pat has revealed it's the ESV. Uh, I don't want to. So sue me. Where's the camera? Sue me. I don't give a flip. You can't get blood out of a turnip. Um, they're wanting to make it more gender friendly, they say. They're wanting to change the term of our father to our eternal parent. This is why, at least from me, in, 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 in this, we don't have a pulpit, but if it was in this pulpit, we have a pulpit. I don't like pulpits. They constrain me. I'm claustrophobic. I can't stand it. <laughs> but you can't change the original text. You see, Hebrew in the Old Testament, for example, is frozen in time. As Malachi wrote the final of the Old Testament books, the world was changing to Aramaic. As John the Revelator was writing the final of the New Testament books, the world was already making its transition to Latin. And then after Latin, Koine Greek changed to Byzantine Greek. Koine Greek is frozen in time. If it says it, that's what it says. You can't play with the words. That's it. If it says it in classic Hebrew in the Old Testament, that's it. You can't play with the words. You can learn, you can learn Old Testament Hebrew and you can go to Israel and you might pick up on something here and there that somebody says or does, but it's a different animal. They have the same letters, same alphabet, and the same way with Greece and, and with regard to Greek. And it's, and it's, 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 it's to our joy and, and, and happiness that the word of God cannot change. Forever, O Lord, the psalmist said, thy word is settled in heaven. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. God made it that way. Why were there 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Because in the purpose and design of God, Alexander the Great was conquering the known civilized world of the Western Hemisphere, at least, or at least in this part. And he was baptizing the world in Greek Hellenic philosophy, which required a knowledge of Koine Greek, common man's Greek. Alexander the Great, I'm sure, died as lost as a ball in high weeds, but he did something that God extracted from him in his purpose. Namely, give to us the language of the New Testament. And those words with their voice, tense, and mood, and, 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 and whatever, declensions, all of it, it's, it's, it's unchangeable. Now, how can, this, how can this bunch of people take the blessed, holy, precious word of God and decide among themselves in some sort of distorted committee meeting that they can change the very words that come from the original? You can't do it. Now, I've been on a soapbox. I got off my thing here. <laughs> Truth is absolute, and it is in the holy word of God. You find something in the world, I don't care if it comes from a science book or history book, if it doesn't agree with the word of God, it is wrong. Satan is the father of lies. He is a liar from his beginning. So, here it is. Christ is the only way to God. You cannot know the true and living God apart from his Christ. Psalm 2. Why do the nations Rage against God and his Christ. I mentioned the monotheistic religions. The world doesn't get such a heartburn over the other religions that have no Christ. But they have fits over Christianity with our Christ. Well, that's the world. Who is the God of this world? So then, this is our Christian message. I'm going to make a bold statement that I'm going to base on 44 years of preaching and all of my life reading the Bible, and it is this. I'm convinced. If you don't believe the Bible... In its original text, in the absolute truth which it was given to us originally. If you don't believe that, there's no help for you. I cannot help you. Our elders, our deacons, our Sunday school teachers, we cannot help you. An angel from heaven cannot help you and God will not help you. If you call him in any way a liar... This is the next part of the Christian message. No one has ever seen God. You can't, you can't contain the fullness and glory of the infinite, and that's not even an appropriate word, God who belongs to every dimension and measure of time and beyond those measures 
We cannot understand anything beyond our measure and dimension of time and space in which we live. God made it that way. God created us that way. But this is our Christian message. In this present existence, you cannot know God apart from Christ because there is no greater explanation. There is no other explanation. Jesus Christ is the highest explanation of God. And that's all we can contain of all that he did. To take upon himself the sins of his own, to take it to the cross. And I hung there in my sin. My sin hung there with him. And my sin with him was placed into the only God could do this. My sin and all the other sins of his own, he carried them into the tomb and there he did away with it and he was resurrected and there when he was resurrected, all of his own now have the power of resurrection as well. Paul says to the Romans, the same spirit that raised him up from the grave will raise me up from the grave. That's truth. Only God could do that. You don't find that kind of claim in any other so-called religion. You cannot know this is part two of the Christian message. You cannot know God except through Christ. There's no other way. Good works cannot save you. False gods cannot save you. False goddesses cannot save you. False religions cannot save you. And a twisted view of Christendom cannot save you. And there's a lot of that today. You can only be saved by grace and truth. And it only comes through Jesus Christ. I may have preached a little bit of that sermon again, but I don't care. I didn't wear it out. So now, this is the testimony of John. We're getting into the new part now. The Jews. This is not seen as some sort of spiteful racial group. This is seen as those who were the religious leaders in that era, in that day, in that culture. If it had been today, it would be, what, Rome? I don't know. It'd be something else. But in this case, it's the Jews. Sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem that they might ask him, that is, ask John the Baptist, who are you? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Here is the way the setting was in this day. It started with the promise of the seed of woman, but then this prophecy of the Christ grew and became more clear, became clearer and, and more focused, such that by this time, just looking at their Old Testament, they would have known he would, have, he would be a son of David. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah the prophet. And he would, give, he would give sight to the blind, a blessing to the Gentiles, all these things. But Daniel is the prophet who pinpointed the time when he would come. At the end of 69 seven-year periods, which began at the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, that, those dates are given in the Old Testament. You can move forward from that, and it brings you to the 30s A.D., about the 30s A.D. 
So there was this anticipation, and that's why so many fellows were running around claiming to be the Christ in those days. There's only one Christ. In the Greek text, it's very emphatic. It's an emphatic denial. I am not the Christ. So they continue with him. What then? Are you Elijah? In Malachi, chapters 3 and 4, the Old Testament promise is given that before Christ comes in power and glory to judge the world, Elijah the prophet will precede him. Some people think that one of the two witnesses is Elijah the prophet. The purpose of this message is not to engage that particular study. It is to say this, there is this Old Testament prophet. These guys knew that. The priests, the Levites, they knew this. The scribes, Pharisees. Then are you Elijah? Because, okay, first of all, when they said, are you the Messiah? I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. These guys were not looking for a savior. You understand that? They were looking for confirmation of their greatness and the establishment of the kingdom, which they knew God, they deserved from God because they obeyed the law. So they weren't going to, they weren't taking the place of a sinner. They were arrogant and filled with pride. I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I'm not. Let me tell you, let me tell you the theological depth of this. As the story of John the Baptist and then the Christ of God move through the Gospels, this proclamation, this declaration here that he is not Elijah. Luke chapter 1 says he comes in the spirit of Elijah and power of Elijah, but he's not Elijah. That's a teaching in itself that Christ will come twice. He comes the first time to fulfill those prophecies of the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the Savior of his own. And he comes the second time in power and great glory. But the religious elite from Jerusalem had dismissed the prophecies of a suffering Messiah who would die. Daniel prophesied that at the end of that 69th seven-year period, Christ would be murdered cut off. The Hebrew word means to be murdered and he will receive nothing. In other words, he won't set up a kingdom right then. This is all prophesied in Daniel. So they knew it was a time for the Christ to come, but they're just ignoring those prophecies about his atonement, his death, his suffering. All right. Well, are you the prophet? Well, that takes us to Deuteronomy 18, what Moses said. Someday the prophet, the prophet, the prophet, definite article is used, will come and you'll listen to him. So this again speaks of the Christ. Peter says so in Acts 3 in his second, um, second sermon. He tells them that this prophet is Christ and that he has come to proclaim to them salvation. There's only one way to be saved. So then are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Therefore they said to him, 
Well, who are you? That we might give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River, close to Bethany. And all of Israel is coming to him, being baptized. But the power of his message, his message was a unique message. It was a message for the Jews of that day, for Israel of that day. Because John the Baptist was bridging the Old Testament to the New Testament. He was preaching the last Old Testament message and the first New Testament message. He is unique among all. Christ said in Matthew 11, there's not a greater man to this point than John the Baptist. He wears animal skins. He eats bugs and he drinks honey. The influential people with all of their glorious array and attire with their jewels and influence and power. John the Baptist was the greatest of all of them. Of every man. You look at all the patriarchs, all the whoever. John the Baptist is the greatest because he initiates the Christian message. He introduces the Christ of God to the world. The Lamb of God. No greater than him. Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What say you? About yourself. I am a voice crying in the wilderness. This is the foundation of New Testament preaching and preachers. I'm nothing. I'm in the midst of a wilderness, literally and physically and spiritually. My name is not important. Where I came from is not important. Where I live is not important. But my message is everything. It doesn't matter who I am, what you think of me. It doesn't matter. I am a voice. A voice crying in the wilderness. What was his message? This is from Isaiah 40. So he had been prophesied, the harbinger of the Christ, the forerunner. He has been prophesied. He is the, there was only one lawgiver. That was Moses. I mean, you just go through the Bible. Here is here is the only forerunner of the Christ with a unique message and no other message would be appropriate for him except this one. This was his purpose. This was his life. This was his existence to be a voice crying in the wilderness and preaching this message. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, you can read more details about the specifics of his message in the other gospel accounts. And he goes like this. I am here proclaiming to the people that they are not ready. 
The great Christ of God is about to burst on the scene and your hearts are not ready. Israel is not ready. People are not ready. I am here to tell you that the king is coming and you need to make the road coming in, you need to make it straight and smooth. The potholes, the low places, the sin in your life. You need to fill it up, confess and repent. All the high places, rocks have fallen, things have gotten in the way. Those things like pride and arrogance, those things need to be knocked down. The people are full of pride and they're full of sin. They have raised up places and they have low places and that all needs to be made smooth. Prepare your hearts. Make straight the way of the Lord. And they asked him and said to him, well, then why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John said, I only baptize with water. What you got against water? I've come to tell the people that they're not ready. That Christ stands at the door to be introduced to his people. You're full of sin and filled with arrogance and pride and you're not ready. And this way, this way needs to be made straight. And so the people having been told that they're not prepared through repentance and confession have prepared themselves. And they want to let everybody know they've prepared themselves by coming to my baptism. But it's only water. It doesn't save them. It's just an outward expression of what they are saying has happened inwardly, namely that as a Jew, they have acknowledged the reality of the Christ, that he, it's time for him to be revealed, and they are not ready for it. The gospel, another gospel says, I can only baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. But in your midst stands one whom you know not. You don't know who Christ is. You think you, you think you have a deep theology of a knowledge of the Christ. You don't know the Christ. It's obvious in the way that you have developed your religion, in the way that you have perverted the Old Testament and the law, that you would stand here in your robes and expect everyone to pay obeyance to you and bow to you and get out of your way when you come filled with your spiritual pride. You don't know Christ. You don't know the reality of Christ. You don't know him. But he's here. And he's about to show himself. And the one coming after me of whom... I am not worthy that I should untie the strap of his sandal. That was the most demeaning task of the slaves of that day. To take off the sandals of the master and wash his feet. I'm lower than that, John says. 
You think of the worst and most demeaning task of anything that you would require of anybody. I'm lower than that when it comes to the Christ of God. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is the foundation of the Christian message. This is the beginning of it. Who Christ is and who I am in relation to him and what he does. John says at the end of his book, I've written these things so that you'll be saved. So many more things I could have written, he will say at the end of his book. But all the books in the world couldn't contain all that Jesus did when he was here. But I've written these things that you may know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God and that knowing that you would be saved believing in his name. His name. You should call his name Jesus. The angel from heaven said he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. Let's go backwards with that. That's an English transliteration of the Greek Jesus, which is a translation into the Greek from the Hebrew, which is Yeshua, Yeshua, which is a combination word. And it means Jehovah saves, Yahweh saves, Yahweh is salvation. It's the last name given of God in the Bible. He's a savior. He saves people. Are you a sinner? He will save you. Nothing is required of you. God will call you, give you the gift of faith and repentance and draw you to himself. And he will clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. And your sin, you will know, will have been placed on the cross. You'll be saved. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners, the Bible says. If you're here today and you would come to Christ, you're invited to do that during this time of invitation when we begin to sing a song of invitation. Maybe you're here and God leads you to come into the fellowship and membership of this church. You're invited to do that as far as I can do these things. And we'll take care of all the details. Maybe you don't want to do that publicly, but you have questions. Well, when you leave, there are deacons and their wives in rooms just across the hall and you'll see them standing there and you can step in there and speak with them about these things. But this is God's time with us. Father God in heaven, speak to our hearts now. Whatever happens, we'll glorify you and praise you in the name of Christ. Prayerfully, heads bowed, eyes closed. Would you just stand prayerfully all over this room while he sings our song of invitation? Would you come?